Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And uh, today we will be covering another mentally ill royal because listeners love them so much. Uh, and this one is from a country we haven't talked about a whole lot, which is Sweden. And it actually, uh, people will probably notice some parallels between this story and, uh, the podcast we covered on Korea's Prince Sado. There are some similar themes that run father issues, madness slowly developing. This one is not quite as, uh, creatively gruesome, however, which is, um, a nice little break, perhaps. And we're gonna actually build this one up kind of in layers. So we're not gonna go chronologically. We're going to cover various aspects of this person's life categorically. So we'll talk a little bit about the family and how they came into power. We'll talk about, you know, his romantic interests. We'll talk about his political kind of each in chunks and then his sort of mental state and how it, it broke down throughout all of this. So many of these things were going on simultaneously and we'll connect the dots where we can. But they're just each such big chunks of his life that I wanted to kind of give them each their own time in the spotlight. And so the person we're talking about today is Eric the 14th of Sweden. And he was not the only member of his family to succumb to madness, but because he sat on the ruling throne, his uh, mental issues were in sharp focus during his reign. So first, we actually have to talk about his father. His father was Gustav I. Gustav was crowned King of Sweden in 1523. And similarly to the story of Korea's Crown Prince Sato, Eric's father was also a man who was admired for his leadership skills, but also had kind of a darkness about him. Uh, modern historians have suspected that he may have had some degree of mental illness as well. Yeah, he, again, very similar to the Sato story, was very quick to anger. Uh, his rage could result in very violent behavior. There are stories of him tearing his daughter's hair out when she angered him. Like he grabbed her by the hair so hard he pulled out the the hair by the roots. Um, he beat a goldsmith to death for taking a day off without being granted leave. Like he hadn't asked for the time off. And he would occasionally chase people around the castle with knives just for annoying him. And that particular behavior will kind of echo again later in his son in kind of a, even a, a creepier way. Probably the most important legacy of Gustav was his leadership of the rebellion against King Christian II in the Swedish War of Liberation. So before this war, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway were all part of the dynastic Union of Kalmar. Gustav, who had been a nobleman but not a royal, was chosen to rule the newly liberated country. And that whole story, you know, the the liberation of Sweden could certainly be another topic on its own. So we're not getting into all of the politics of that. We just want to establish that Gustav was a leader in this rebellion and kind of a very revered leader. Uh, And then 10 years into Gustav's reign, Prince Eric was born, and that was on December 13th of 1533. And he was born in the royal castle in Stockholm. His mother was Catherine of Saxe-Lauenburg. And Catherine actually died when Eric was still quite tiny. He was not even two years old. And as his parents' marriage was not a particularly happy one, Gustav really was not all that broken up over the death of his wife. Uh, and he soon took a second wife, Margareta Leonhuvud, uh, which I may or may not have butchered. And that she would actually end up being his second of three, but we won't get into all of his his multiple wives. But um, basically, Eric grew up never really knowing his mother. So as Eric came into his own, his father granted him the title of Duke. 
and he was basically the 16th century equivalent of the modern prep school superstar. He was extremely attractive, athletic, and bright. He also ran with a group of friends who liked to party, and he developed a drinking habit pretty early on. His father did not approve of all of this behavior and how prone he was to just a lot of excess. Yeah, he really was kind of your, uh, like you said, classic spoiled rich kid. He could do whatever he wanted, and so he did. This is when somebody is going to just diagnose him with affluenza and all of his <laughs> terrible behavior later. I hope not. That word troubles me. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, but Eric eventually became king on September 29th of 1560 when Gustav died. And this was just before Eric turned 27. So uh, he was kind of living the playboy life at this point, although he had served as regent once before from 1555 to 1556, while his father was away on a military campaign in Russia. And he had already been ruling a handful of provinces uh, in his title as Duke. But this augmentation of his power once he ascended the throne kind of played with his head a bit and probably brought into focus some issues that had been existing, but not as obvious and not as disconcerting. So this same hedonism that Eric had really embraced when he was a duke rolled right over into his reign as a king, and that started with his coronation. His ceremony was this huge, lavish display. He immediately redecorated the castle with all kinds of lavish tapestries and furnishings, And he wanted everybody to call him Majesty, and he was the first ruler in Sweden to do so. Yeah, he uh, added a lot of titles to the Swedish lexicon that had not been there previously, even though they are in other uh, royal lineage, Majesty being one of them. Uh, And it's commonly believed by most modern historians when they write about Eric that all of this pomp and circumstance, his overindulgence in luxury, uh, you know, needing to have the most beautiful everything around him was really just a way for him to hide a very deep-seated insecurity. And that sense of inferiority that he seemed to really just kind of stew in uh, came from two primary sources. One was that his father, despite having a temper, was a really loved king, and he was seen as a hero. So you can imagine the difficulty of filling those shoes as the next in line to the throne. And the second is that that line to the throne was very short. This was not a long family monarchy. Uh, Eric's family, the House of Vasa, was in its infancy as rulers of the nation because Gustav had taken over after, you know, Sweden was liberated. So Eric was constantly in fear of being ousted because he felt like he was not part of an established royal lineage. And this brought him to the point where he was paranoid about just about everyone he came in contact with. He suspected everyone was going to try to take his power from him. Perhaps the thing that he's most well-known for is a courtship of a longtime podcast favorite, Tudor Queen Elizabeth I. He was one of her uh, several failed suitors. His pursuit of her started before he became king, and his father was opposed to the match. Gustav thought that England was not that important, and he really didn't see the point of forging a big alliance with them. And knowing that he would one day be crowned as king, Eric, on the other hand, really wanted to solidify his power by making a strong marriage. This actually becomes kind of funny later on when you find out how his marriage life worked out. Uh, but at the time, you know, in his eyes, what would be more impressive than a union with his virgin queen who had been, even though England was not at the time this huge powerhouse, she was recognized as being sort of a prize. She was unattainable. Many people were courting her. Uh, 
So he thought it would be sort of a great feather in his cap. And we'll talk more about his motivation for seeking out her as a bride in just a bit. But for her part, Elizabeth sort of ran hot and cold with the Swedish prince. Uh, she wasn't particularly taken with him. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment when we read a letter from her. Uh, you know, he had sent her portraits of himself, uh, and he had sent his brother to work as his ambassador, his love ambassador in Elizabeth's court. But she still wasn't particularly romantically interested. However, she did recognize that her country needed allies at the time. So it served her purposes to keep things pretty cordial with Eric. And remember, he was also very handsome. So it wasn't like she was, you know, just leading on some poor man that had no chance. She may have even been considering the match at some point, but... In the end, that did not happen. No. Finally, after Eric's brother presented Elizabeth with a proposal of marriage in late 1559, in early 1560, she responded with the following letter. Most serene prince, our very dear cousin. A letter truly yours, both in the writing and sentiment, was given us on 30 December by your very dear brother, the Duke of Finland. And while we perceive there from that the zeal and love of your mind towards us is not diminished. Yet in part we are grieved that we cannot gratify your serene highness with the same kind of affection. And that indeed does not happen because we doubt in any way of your love and honor. But, as often we have testified in both words and writing, that we have never yet conceived a feeling of that kind of affection towards anyone. We therefore beg your serene highness again and again that you be pleased to set a limit to your love, that it advance not beyond the laws of friendship for the present, nor disregard them in the future. And we, in our turn, shall take care that whatever can be required for the holy preservation of friendship between princes, we will always perform towards your serene highness. It seems strange for your serene highness to write that you understand from your brother and your ambassadors that we have entirely determined not to marry an absent husband and that we shall give you no certain reply until we have seen your person. We certainly think that if God ever direct our hearts to consideration of marriage, we shall never accept or choose any absent husband, how powerful and and wealthy a prince soever. But that we are not to give you an answer until we have seen your person is so far from the thing itself that we have never even considered such a thing. But I have always given both to your brother." who is certainly a most excellent prince and deservedly very dear to us, and also to your ambassador likewise the same answer, with scarcely any variation of the words, that we do not conceive in our heart to take a husband, but highly commend this single life, and hope that your serene highness will no longer spend time in waiting for us. Please stop bugging me. (laughs) I, I think at that point he had been so ardent and so uh, aggressive in his pursuit, even though he was not there in person, that she had just kind of hit the wall. It was like, we have to shut the prince down now. Uh, and when Elizabeth had finally clearly so refused his proposal, Eric's first thought was that he should go see her in person. Uh, and he was actually planning this trip and amassing all of his travel arrangements when his father's death and some poor weather conditions kind of conspired to put an end to that plan. Don't be creepy, Eric. <laughs> Eventually, he did accept that Elizabeth was not going to be his bride, although they did kind of seem like they could have been a good match. They were both quick-witted, well-educated gingers with father who, fathers who had great power. 
he moved on to other marriage targets, at one point proposing also to Mary, Queen of Scots, as well as to at least two other princesses. Yeah, and it, uh, I read one account, and I, it wasn't really substantiated enough for me to include it as a source, but that suggested that the people were getting wind of the fact that he was, at that point, just going, will you marry me, to various princesses that he thought might make a good match. Uh, and even though he bungled all of these royal marriage attempts... Uh, we should point out that it was not as though the prince was chaste as a bachelor. He had three daughters with his mistress, Agda Pear's daughter, uh, Virginia, who was born in 1559, Constantina, which, who was born in 1560, and Lucretia, who was born in 1564. Lucretia, however, died as a young child. She did not make it to adulthood. Agda eventually lost her position as mistress when Eric fell in love with Karen Mann's daughter. He had a daughter named Sigrid with Karen in 1566 and a son, Gustav, in July 1568. The day after Gustav was born, Eric officially married Karen, and uh, they had been secretly married for almost a year at that point. Yeah, that was just their public marriage. Uh, and as you might imagine, this choice of wife was a little bit of a problem. Uh, Karen was not of noble birth. Her father had been a soldier and then a jailer, and her mother was a peasant. So after all of his efforts to make a good match with a royal family and gain an ally, in the end, he married a woman who had absolutely no political power whatsoever. Uh, and not only did this marriage snub all of the highborn people who would have gladly married one of their relatives to the king, this also um, played into Eric's inferiority complex. He got to this point where he constantly suspected people were making fun of him and his queen behind their backs. And again, this is overlaid with his other things going on. So when that was happening, there were other political events taking place as well. And we will get to those in just a moment. But do you want to take a word from our sponsor? So getting back to King Eric... Uh, so that kind of covered the entirety of his romantic life, soup to nuts. But now we're going to kind of go back in time and talk about him sort of as a leader and what his goals were and overlay that over those other things that were happening. Because he started out a pretty focused and ambitious king. Uh, his decisions were often driven by his paranoia, but he really had some good ideas initially. One of the first moves Eric made as a monarch was the passage of the Articles of, Ar of Arboga in 1561 by calling a Reichstag, which was a legislative assembly, to meet at Arboga to approve the adoption of the Articles. These Articles, once they were put in place, basically annulled provisions that had been set by Gustav I, and they severely limited the power of royal dukes John and Charles, who were Eric's brothers by his father's second wife. Yeah, the, he really wanted to take away power from his brothers immediately because he was paranoid about them. Uh, whereas Gustav had tried to set them up and say, like, no, no, they will be almost your equal, even though they will not be king. That was maybe not one of his best plans. However, uh, he also established uh, the baron and count titles into the Swedish nobility. So similar to demanding that people call him majesty, he also added some other uh, royal levels on the ladder. Uh, and he introduced a new constitution to Sweden. He also organized appellate courts and a Supreme Court, and he created a refuge for people that were fleeing the Inquisition in other countries. So uh, he was trying to do some good stuff. He was also constantly trying to curtail the power and poten potential for anyone to overthrow him, while at the same time granting favors to and building the stature of the people he felt would be loyal to him even though many of those people were not of noble or royal birth. 
And one of those men, Joran Pearson, became Eric's most trusted advisor. And Pearson was apparently smart as a whip, but not really a pillar of morality. Uh, when you hear him or when you read about him in historical texts, he's really described as pretty snaky. Uh, and many members of the court really felt that he had way too much sway over the king. One of Eric's primary strategic goals as ruler was to build up Sweden's power in the Baltic Sea in order to free trade through those waters from the control of the Danes. One of the reasons he had been so keen on marrying Elizabeth I was to help bolster this plan with an ally in Western Europe. So as the union with the Tudor Queen and the other ladies he had proposed to uh, shortly thereafter had not panned out, to form, you know, this alliance that he thought might help this plan, he decided instead that he was just going to start taking over as much of the Baltic coast as he could by force. His keen desire to expand his power was the complete opposite of his father, who really valued peace over expansion and had worked a lot to stabilize all of his relationships with the surrounding nations. And in 1562, Eric's brother John, who was the Duke of Finland, had entered into a treaty with the King of Poland, and he married the Polish king's daughter. And this was a problem. It was a huge slap in the face to Eric, who opposed the union and the power it was going to bring to John, because remember, he was paranoid and no one else should be getting any more power. So he decided that he would have his brother and sister-in-law imprisoned. Nice one. Yeah. In 1563, after tensions had been rising for some time, the Seven Years' War of the Norths began when the King of Denmark and Norway, Frederick II, joined forces with Poland and Lübeck and declared war on Sweden in retaliation for Eric's land grab in Estonia. And this war actually went pretty well for the Swedish forces at sea, but the land battles were a completely different story. Uh, villages and towns were badly damaged. Civilians were often killed or brutalized during battles. And the horrific reality that Eric's subjects were living in, uh, constantly in fear that some battle was going to break out, was in stark contrast to the life that he was living. Uh, because even though he was uh, catalyzing all of these these military ventures, he rarely actually went out onto the field of battle. He would kind of relay commands from the safety of his castle where he was often hanging out with his friends. Throughout all the awkward courtships and the political maneuvering, Eric's mental state had been slowly eroding away as the pressure of his position and his constant fear of losing it really started to take their toll. As the Seven Years' War dragged on, it chipped away at the king, even though he remained as removed from it as possible. And it started to reveal what many have suspected to be schizophrenia. He began to have fits of rage that were similar to those of his father, and they would happen for progressively more minor infractions. Uh, things actually got to a point in the castle where coughing or clearing your throat would get you accused of treason. Basically, like, don't breathe weird. Literally, he would be suspicious. Like, what did you just do? Uh, servants would be put to death just for annoying the king uh, if they made too much noise. There's one story where he thought that um, any of the like footmen or anyone that dressed too nice, that looked too put together, was there to steal all the women. Like He really just became paranoid and assumed intentions on people's parts that were not even there. And then, similar to how his father would uh, walk around chasing people with knives throughout the castle that he thought had wronged him, Eric instead just started trawling the hallways with his sword drawn 
in this sort of maddened vigilance where he was on the lookout for people that he thought might betray him. So basically just walking around with a sword in his hand and anyone he came in contact with, he would look them over to see if he thought they had ill intentions towards him. And they may very well be stabbed. Finally, an incident involving the Stura family was a turning point for Eric. Stura family members had governed Sweden in the time before Eric's father, Gustav, led the liberation uprising. And Eric was convinced that they were plotting to overthrow him. And there had been arguments and fears about the Sturas before, uh, but this time his paranoia became so great that to counter this threat that he perceived, Eric had Niels and Svant Sture, who were father and son, imprisoned in Uppsala Castle. And before we get to this next part of the story uh, where things get quite violent, we'll stop and have a quick ad break. Uh-huh. On May 24th, 1567, Eric went to visit the Sturis on the false premise that he wanted to reach a point of reconciliation. But instead of talking through all of his issues with them, Eric stabbed one of them to death. Uh, he fled the scene and commanded the guards at Uppsala to kill all the prisoners. Eric laid low for several days after the incident, and in what was likely a remorseful move, paid for lavish funerals for the slain Sturis. And Joran Pearson, who we mentioned earlier, Eric's most trusted advisor and kind of universally recognized as a weasel, uh, was actually arrested in the incident, and he was removed from the office that the king had given him. And the king, for his part, retreated to a castle outside of Stockholm, and he stopped doing any sort of governing and fell into a very deep depression. For six months, a council ruled in Eric's stead. And after that time, Eric returned to Stockholm, ready once again to rule Sweden. His first act was to reinstate Joran Persson as his closest advisor. This is also the period during which Eric was romantically involved with Karen Mann's daughter, and the aristocracy saw his preference for lower-born confidants as troubling. And because this preference uh, for the lower classes was also coupled with the full manifestation of his mental illness, it was very easy for people to conflate the two issues as sort of one big problem. And part of the problem was that when Eric would fall into a particularly dark mental state or sometimes even become disoriented or confused, he would retreat and he would let his advisor, Joran Pearson, and his queen, who, you know, had been of peasant birth, rule on his behalf. And these lower class people giving orders really gnawed at the nobility and the um, aristocracy in the court. The brother, Duke John, that Eric had imprisoned, was liberated in 1567 after more than four years as a captive. John and his brother Charles joined forces against their clearly incapacitated brother, and together they successfully took Stockholm, and Eric abdicated his his crown upon surrender to his half-brothers. And Eric and his family, uh, because at this point he was with Karen, were imprisoned together for several years. And he and Karen actually had two more sons while they were held in custody. But eventually, the ousted king was separated from his wife and children. Eric's half-brother was crowned King John III after uh, Eric was removed from power. Joran Persson was then put to death. 
And Eric died on February 26th of 1577. And while the public announcement at the time said that the former king had died after a long illness, his remains were actually examined uh, in the recent past, in the 1950s, and the findings confirmed a, a suspicion that had been held for a long time. Eric had actually died of poisoning with arsenic. Karen, the peasant who uh, rose to the position of queen only to fall again, lived another 35 years after Eric died on land that she was granted after his death. Yeah, even though he was ousted, they did provide a a pension and land for her to raise their family and live out her life, and she did. Uh, But Eric, at that point, they they just wanted to move on and not think about him very much anymore. And it is, uh, you know, one of those cases of uh, youth so full of promise that kind of all fell apart. Right. And he, as I said at the top of the podcast, not the only person with mental illness in his family. He had another half-brother, I believe his name was Magnus, that was schizophrenic. His son, Gustav, that was named after his father, exhibited the same problems that Eric had had, uh, and he never had a family. So clearly there's something in the bloodline. Uh, Again, another sad royal. Yeah. As as I predicted, we we did get some angry letters from people... uh, after we talked about Crown Prince Sato, uh-huh. who, who were kind of angry that we seemed to be sympathizing with someone who had committed so many terrible atrocities. But in a lot of ways, it's the same story of those atrocities may have been prevented uh, had there been any kind of, of mental health diagnosis and treatment in an appropriate way yeah, when I they were living. S- certainly would not ever want to diminish the loss of life uh of anyone. And certainly in the, both of these stories, you know, this sort of callous disregard for people, uh, you know, for doing nothing more than coughing at the wrong time, you could be killed. Of course, that is a horrible tragedy. But it is also tragic that people suffer with mental illness that is never treated. Right. It's just two different kinds of tragedies. And I'm not uh, saying, you know, oh, no, poor guy. I mean, yes, poor guy that he was suffering. Also horrible guy. Stop doing that. So... <laughs> So, um, that's the scoop on Eric the 14th of Sweden. Hopefully we'll do more history pieces around Sweden and Denmark yeah. and Norway and all of that area. Cause they haven't gotten a lot of play on the podcast historically. No. Um, do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. This is from our listener, Chelsea, and it is about our foot binding episode. Uh, she says, hello, thank you for the recent podcast on foot binding. I studied East Asian culture and language in college, and this was always a topic that interested me on a number of levels. I was surprised that you didn't bring up the end of the dynastic era and the beginning of the Republic of China as the end of the practice, though. Clearly a practice so entrenched in the customs of the population and permanently evidenced in the feet of every woman is not simply ended in a day, so one cannot point to a single catalyzing event. In my history classes, we were taught a heavier influence of the Republican forces on the end of footbinding. The fall of the Xing dynasty also brought swift rejection of anything that was tied to the, quote, old ways. Many people view Mao Zedong and the rise of the communist regime as the primary driver of modernization and rejection of traditional practices, but the wind started blowing that way in 1911. The Cultural Revolution certainly codified and violently enforced this change in views, but the fall of the Xing Dynasty was the major dividing point for the social and cultural norm of footbinding. Thank you for an interesting and thought-provoking podcast. Yeah, I didn't uh, talk a whole lot about the politics of it because I really wanted to focus on the culture. And truthfully, I um, probably would not have put it so eloquently as Chelsea did and yeah. cleanly. I would have ended up going a <laughs> circuitous route and being like, well, there was also... Well, 
And I've also had the cultural revolution on my, like, ideas wish list for episodes pretty much since we came on to the podcast. And it's just so enormous. (laughs) That's the thing. I have that moment of, I can never include all of this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so enormous. And there are so many factors in how it came about and the, you know, what it influenced and the effects that it had that... uh, attempting to mention it in the context of another thing then sort of opens up this giant can of worms and then it becomes a six-part podcast. Yeah. It's not always a good thing. I still have the cultural revolution on the wish list. It yeah. It is very, very big. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's such good stuff to talk about and it's such a rich uh, sort of kettle of information, but it is hard to break it down into digestible pieces. But again, Chelsea put it very um, cleanly and succinctly yes. in a way that I would not have. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at history, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and on pinterest.com slash history. You know how else you can get in touch with us? Is it on our website? Yeah. Oh. history.com is right. Ready and waiting for you to come and visit. You can peruse uh, old episodes, new episodes, blog posts. We are still working on tagging everything, the, yeah. uh, the back catalog. We got a very generous offer of someone to tag it for us. We've gotten a couple. Sadly, yeah, sadly, there are a whole lot of silly reasons that we can't do it that yeah, way. There are barriers that prevent us from bringing on uh, people, even though they volunteer, and it's so kind of it's them. It's very generous of, of everyone who has made that offer. Yes, so we thank you for being willing to help and wish that we could take you up on it. Uh, if you would like to research a little bit about what we talked about today, sort of, uh, you can go to our website at howstuffworks.com and you can search schizophrenia and you'll get an article called How Schizophrenia Works will break down sort of some of those paranoid behaviors and how people are quick to um, make assumptions about the intents of others, and as well as other aspects of it. And if you would like to research that, you can, but you can also research almost anything else you can think of at HowStuffWorks.com. And we hope you do. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff.